All right, well, since it's quiet, I suppose you think we should start now, right? All right, good. Let's start then. Uh, but before we start, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time together. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and to study your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that this time would be a time where we invite you to change us. And we invite you to change us, uh, not because of the teacher or what he says, but because of what you, the teacher, say in your word. And Lord, we pray that your word would change us this morning, that, that we would be struck by the things that your apostle is telling us. And uh, Lord, we just pray that, that you would change us according to your will this morning. In your holy and precious name we pray, amen. All right, well... If you haven't already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We're going to continue taking a look at chapter 1 this morning. And if you'll remember from last week, we had begun to take a look at the first 11 verses of the first chapter of Colossians last week. And I put up our outline here on the board for you just as a, a bit of a reference point as we continue to work through the text of Colossians today. And just by way of review, last week we looked at the first 11 verses, which is the first uh, chunk of Colossians, if you will. It's the first part. And in this first part, as we saw last week, Paul was introducing himself, and he's introducing uh, the, the recipients, and then he is sort of stating, not in a formal academic thesis, but what he's doing is he's saying, this is the reason why I am writing this epistle to you. And I'm writing this epistle to you for this reason. And you can see the thesis as we saw last week in verse 9. He says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking you that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's his sort of big picture purpose and why he's writing this book. And what for Paul, he didn't just pray for the Colossians, that they would be filled with the knowledge of Christ and then that driving them to a, uh, a fruit of their faith. He didn't just pray for that. He's actually taking steps to help this come about. And that's what the book of Colossians is. It is Paul working out his thesis, working out the things that he's praying for the Colossians for. And those things are these right here. That's the next two chunks of Colossians. He's, he prays that they would have the knowledge of Christ. Then he gives them the knowledge of Christ. Who is this guy? What did he do? What is redemption? All those sorts of things. And then he tells them exactly how they ought to live as Christians. And so he's, he's working out his thesis. He's working out his prayer requests for the Colossians. He's not just saying stuff. He's actually trying to help them with these things that he and, and his associates are praying for them. And so today, since we finished uh, verses 1 through 11 last week, we're going to start to take a look here at this second section. And this is where Paul begins to almost seamlessly work his way into a treatment on the doctrine of Christ. Not in a formal, academic way, not in a scholastic way, but just very basic, but profound and deep statements about who Jesus is and what he's done. And while the first section took us one week to go through, this second section is going to take a lot longer than one week. We're going to be slowing down. We're going to be, you know, next week we'll be looking at half of a verse. The whole session will be on half a verse. Today, though, our text is going to be verses 12 through 17a. All right, that's what we're looking at today. This is the first part of Paul's treatment on the knowledge of Christ as he's 
wanting to actually bring about the things that he's praying for the Colossians. All right, so we'll, we'll start at verse 9, but our text that we're dealing with is verses 12 through 17a. So I'll read that for us here. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now here's verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share into the inheritance of the saints in light. For he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. You can see there's a lot of profound depth and the things that Paul is saying here. And we're going to take a look at these statements that Paul is making about Jesus. But first of all, notice in verse 12, he begins to move into a treatment of Jesus. And you could say, at least as I read it, verses 12, 13, and 14 is kind of Paul's preface to Christ. His preface to the knowledge of Christ. That is, why does it matter that the Colossians understand who Jesus is? Now, we as 21st century Americans, we know how important it is to understand who Jesus is, right? We've been taught this since we were very little, most of us who grew up in the church. These, these Colossians, though, remember, this is the first century. Christianity is brand new. The Colossians are a brand new church. They've heard the gospel from Epaphras. They're just getting started. And Paul is now writing a treatment of the knowledge of Christ. And he's, in verse 12, beginning to tell them, why does it matter who this Jesus guy is? Because he's about to tell them some profound theological things about Jesus. And he says in verse 12 that they ought to give thanks to the Father, who's qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered them from the domain of darkness, transferring them to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now what he's doing here, what Paul's doing here, is he is explaining to them what Jesus has done for them. He says, the Father has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and so on. But how did the Father do this? How was he able to do this? How was the Father able to deliver you from the domain of darkness? It's by a particular redemption. A redemption accomplished by this Jesus, this Son of God. So right from the get-go here in his treatment, in this, in this preface to who Jesus is, he's saying, listen, this guy's important. This Jesus guy's important because he accomplished a redemption by which the Father transferred you out of a, dark, a kingdom of darkness, a kingdom of sin, a place of death, into a place of inheritance. That's sonship language. That's Paul saying, listen, you guys are no longer sons and daughters of the world where your inheritance is death. But now, y'all are sons and daughters of God. God is now your father as believers. 
This is profound language here. And he's saying, this is important. You have made a total identity transformation here. The old things are past, the new things have come. That is what Jesus has done for you through this redemption, through the forgiveness of sins. This is why you should care who Jesus is. You need to get this right, is what Paul is saying, to this young church that is just getting started. And knowing who Jesus is, knowing knowing his person and knowing his work is so important. And not just important to know just a general idea of who Jesus is, but to know him precisely. To know him as much as we possibly can. That's a big deal. That's what Paul's getting at here. We don't just have faith in some guy named Jesus and then forget about the details. Just imagine for a second if I was I'm walking on the street and I'm witnessing to people, you know, and trying to evangelize people. I'll have to do this next fall when I take an evangelism course at RTS. We have to go and evangelize, sorry, we don't have to. We get to go and evangelize, uh, I think it's like 10 or 20 people or something as part of a requirement for the class. And imagine if I'm, you know, evangelizing these people on the street and I run into someone and I try to tell them about Jesus and they say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believe in him. I'm a born-again Christian. I follow Jesus. And I'm like, oh, great. We're both Christians. We, start, we sit down, get some coffee, and we start talking about this. And pretty soon, I start to raise my eyebrows some of the things he's saying. Because even though he said, I believe in Jesus, he then proceeds to explain to me, yeah, I believe in Jesus, right? God, God created him. God made him. He's an honored being. But he's not God. God made him, and then God sent him down here to show us how to be good people. And then Jesus died a martyr. Now, if someone said that to me, that they believed in that Jesus, is that concerning at all? Yeah, that would be really concerning. Because that's not the biblical Jesus. Jesus was not created by God. Jesus did not come down here to show us how to be good people, although he does do that. He came down here to die on the cross, to pay for our sins, and to give us his righteousness. That's why Jesus came here. So if someone said to me that that's the Jesus they believed in, I would say, oh, we got a problem here, because that's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. And that's, that's the point that Paul's making here. He's saying, we don't just believe in some Jesus, theoretically, some name. I just say Jesus, and that's why I believe it. No, we need to know who the person is. Who's the person behind the name? That's what you're putting your faith in. That's what you need to believe. That's the knowledge of Christ that you need to have. Who is this guy? And so that's when Paul in verse 15 begins to move into his treatment on the knowledge of Christ. Who is this guy? He's already said, this is the person in whom we have redemption, namely the forgiveness of sins. Now let's drill down to the nitty gritty and find out who this guy is. And so in verse 15, that's what Paul does here. Take a look at this verse. And this is huge. This is so deep and profound Christologically. Verse 15. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now these are some deep and profound verses, but they're also some thoroughly misunderstood verses. As you can probably imagine, they're even, they're, they're even a little difficult for us to look at at first glance. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation? What is that? Jesus is the image of the invisible God? What is that? What's Paul saying here? 
First, let's look at uh, he's the image of the invisible God. What does Paul mean by saying he's the image of the invisible God? Well, we ought to recognize that Paul here is, first of all, speaking paradoxically. You notice that? Look, look at the text. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's kind of an odd thing to say. Invisible things don't have appearances. The word image there means appearance. He's saying Jesus is the appearance of the God who has no appearance. That's a little odd to say. That's paradoxical. And so right away, that ought to cue us into something here. That Paul is using uh, a way of, of, a kind of rhetoric that Luther liked to use in the Reformation. Luther liked to state rational, coherent truths in paradoxical language to get people's attention and to help use allegory to explain things that can't be understood with precise theological clarity. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's using allegory to explain something about the inner workings of the triune God. And in this allegory, he's, he, he expresses the allegory in a paradox. He says, Jesus is the appearance, the image, of a God that has no image, a God who has no appearance. It's very interesting language. He is the image of the invisible God. Okay, so we get that. It's, it's a kind of allegory here. It's a kind of, kind of simile, a kind of, of figure of speech. What does it mean? Well, first of all, we've got to look at the invisible God. We've got to understand the invisible God. God is invisible. We all know that. We, we can't see him. We can't sense him. Our eyes can't perceive him. Our ears cannot hear him. Yet he's here right now. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. But we can't sense him. And he's invisible in that sense. And God is also, in another sense, invisible to our understanding. Now, we can deduce some basic truths about him. We can maybe deduce his existence by looking at the creation. That's general revelation. right? We may be able to deduce a few things about him. But largely speaking, God is invisible to us. We can't know him with any kind of depth. We certainly can't know him in a relationship without him revealing himself in some way. And in the scriptures, what we find is that the chief way that God reveals himself to us is through the person of Jesus. As, we, as pastor preaches through uh, the Gospel of John in these coming weeks, we're gonna, you're, you're going to see later in the Gospel, if you haven't thought of this already, these interesting statements that Jesus makes where he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's an interesting statement. We've already looked in John where in chapter 1, the Apostle John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then he says in verse 14, and the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And it becomes clear that when John talks about the Word, he's talking about Jesus. And when D and what's interesting is when D.A. Carson comments on chapter one of the Gospel of John, D.A. Carson's a big biblical theology guy, if you've never heard of him. When D.A. Carson comments on that, he says, When when the, when John calls Jesus the Word of God, what he's doing is he's calling Jesus in, in sort of an analogous way, God's self-expression. 
God's self-expression. And that's because when we use words, we are expressing ourselves, aren't we? The only way you can know what's going on in my mind right now is if I use words to express it to you and try to communicate it in some way, right? You can't read my mind, at least as far as I know. If you do know how to read my mind, I'd love to talk to you afterwards and find out how you are able to do that because I want that skill. But as far as I know, no one can read minds. The only way you can know what's going on in here is if I communicate it like I'm doing right now. And that's kind of analogous to the way that the Father relates to us. We can't know the Father except how he reveals himself to us. And the scripture teaches that he has revealed him to he revealed himself to us in the second person of the Trinity, namely Jesus. That is Jesus is God's self-expression. Jesus is the image of God. And this is exactly why R.C. Sproul in his systematic theology is going to say things like the only way we can know anything about the Father, and if we ever want to know anything about the Father, we need to look to Jesus. Because he is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus, and by the way, if Jesus, we might get this idea that, that if Jesus is the image of God, therefore he's not God. No, that would be a wrong conclusion. Jesus is actually the perfect image of the invisible God because he and the Father share the same essence. Because they share the same being. Because they are one. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And they perfectly, Jesus perfectly reveals the Father because he is of the same essence. He's a perfect image of the Father. And that's what Paul's saying here. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know anything about the Father, look to Jesus. And you can imagine, that's big news for this young church in Colossae, who's, who are just beginning to learn Christianity. And he's like, if you want to know things about God the Father, look at the image. Jesus. And this is, uh, this is why Calvin says in his commentary on Colossians, uh, he says, quote, where is it here? Yeah, quote, We must therefore beware of seeking God the Father elsewhere, elsewhere than the image of Christ, for everything that would set itself off as a representation of God apart from Christ will be an idol. You see what Calvin's saying there? Jesus is the only proper image of God. We don't get to make images of God. That's part of the reason we have a commandment that says you shall not make a graven image. We don't get to do that. We have no right to make images of God because the only image of God that is valid, and indeed not just valid but perfect, is Jesus, the image, the perfect image of the invisible God. And Calvin says if we try to make an image, guess what? It's always going to fall short. It will always be imperfect. Indeed, it will be sinful because how dare we try to make an image better than Jesus. And so that's what Paul means here when he says that Jesus is the image of God. And that statement is even more profound when we recognize that Jesus is the perfect image because he and the Father are the, of the same essence. We'll talk about that more in a second, but look at this next, next claim that Paul makes about God, or about Jesus. So he's the image of the invisible God, and he is the firstborn 
of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now, if the first statement was a little bit hard to grasp what Paul is getting at, this statement's even harder, I think. When I read this text this week, you know, very carefully and trying to understand it, I'm like, boy, this is a difficult statement in some ways. That Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Because what it sounds like, maybe on the surface, is it sounds something like Jesus is the first thing God made. The firstborn of creation. The first thing that God made in creation. And actually, there have been lots of people in church history who have come to that conclusion. We call them heretics. We call them heretics because there are many people who have looked at at this verse and other verses in Scripture and misunderstood them to think that they're teaching that God made Jesus and then made the rest of creation. That Jesus is the firstborn of creation. The first thing that God made in creation. And there's three primary heresies. Well, I guess not heresies. There's three primary groups that share this heresy throughout the Christian church in, in history for the last 1,700 years. The first one of those is Arianism. Uh, Arianism. You guys ever heard of Arianism before? I know you would have talked about it in your church history course um, with uh, a pastor last year, I think it was. Um, But just by way of review, Arianism is a heresy that came up in the early 4th century AD. And Arianism was taught by a guy named Arius, naturally. And Arius who was a teacher in Alexandria, began to teach some new doctrine to his congregation, to his people. And he came up with a little jingle to illustrate his doctrine. And his doctrine was about Jesus. And here was his jingle. It went something like this. He said, there was when he was not. It's a little snappier in Greek. But in English, it's there was when he was not. Meaning, there was a time when Jesus was not. There was a time when Jesus did not exist. That was his jingle. And he and his followers went around singing it, and this began to accumulate some followers. And finally, it it actually sparked a controversy in the church, and there was all kinds of issues, and people were excommunicating each other and stuff. And finally, all the great theologians of the church came together in 325 at what's called the Council of Nicaea. And they drafted the Nicene Creed, which we have been reciting in church the last couple of weeks in the worship service, and we'll recite again today. And the Nicene Creed was drafted specifically to stamp out this heresy and say, no, the scripture does not teach that Jesus was created. It does not say that Jesus was made. That is absolutely wrong. That is totally against scripture, heresy on the spot. Uh, And the church stamped it out. And Arianism lingered on for a couple more centuries, but eventually it totally died out under that name. But you see, that was a major heresy in the early church. And it appealed to this verse and other verses, misunderstanding them to say, see, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He was created. He's not God. There was another more cultish group that showed up later on in the history of the church. And that movement is called uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. You ever heard of Jehovah's Witnesses? Yeah, I'm sure you have. You maybe even have had them come to your door, try to evangelize you. I've had that happen to me when I was in South Dakota. I was 
doing homework um, and had a nice cup of coffee next to me, just come off of the Keurig machine, and I was all happy. I'm like, yes, finally get to focus on the homework. Jordan had just left for work. And then knock at the door, I go, and someone tried to hand me the Watchtower journal magazine thing and then tried to evangelize me to become Jehovah's Witness. And by the time I was done talking with her, my coffee was cold. So I was sad. But, I mean, maybe you've had this experience where Jehovah's Witnesses have come to the door. They are Arians. They hold to this teaching that Jesus was created by God and that Jesus is not God. And um, if we had more time, I'd tell you a little bit more about them, but we don't have as much time as I thought we would. But essentially, they believe that God the Father is the only God. There's no God but God the Father. And Jesus is a created God. That is, God the Father, before he made the world, created Jesus. And then Jesus and God the Father made the world together. So you see, there's no notion of a trinity here. There's no notion of a trinity. Jesus and God are two distinct beings. God being the greater, Jesus being the lesser. Jesus is more than a man, he's more than a human. He's like a demigod. He's got power, he's got honor. He ought to be honored by us. But nonetheless, he's not God. He's simply the first thing that God made in creation. All right? That's the Jehovah's Witnesses' view. And you see, that's pure Arianism. They get that from Arius long ago in the 4th century. And then the third major movement that is essentially Arian is the movement called the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Anyone know what else they're called? Yeah, Mormons, exactly. Mormons. And that's another major cult in America. And the Mormons were founded by a guy named Joseph Smith who saw himself as a divinely appointed restorer of the Christian church. He said, God has appointed me to restore the American church back to the way it was in the time of the apostles. And so he wrote a bunch of what he called scripture. It's called the Book of Mormon. I have a copy of it. It's very interesting to read. Um, But Joseph Smith saw himself as a person to restore Christianity back to apostolic times because in his view, the church was strong until the apostles died, and then the church like basically ended, and there were no true Christians until he came in the 18th century to restore Christianity. That's why it's called the Church of the Latter-day Saints, because they're the Christians in the latter days. And in, for the Mormon theology, when it comes to the Trinity and God and Jesus, it's also Arian. Now, they teach that God has a body, so he's not spirit. He actually has a body, and he used to be a human being, like the rest of us. Yeah, God the Father used to be a human being like the rest of us, only he was a human being in a different universe. And in that universe, as a human, he earned the right to become God of his own universe. Hence, here we are. Because God earned the right to become God of our universe. That's their view. And before God created this universe, he was one, so no trinity, just God the Father, And before he created everything, he begat a whole bunch of spiritual children, including us. But the first spiritual child that God gave birth to spiritually was Jesus. And the second was Satan. And God called a divine council before he made the world. And he said, all right, um, Satan, Jesus, 
just so you know, I'm going to take all these spiritual children and I'm going to put them all in bodies on this planet Earth that I'm going to create. And I want Jesus, my firstborn, to be the Savior. And then Satan got mad. He rebelled. There was a heavenly war. He gets cast down here, hence the origin of sin. It's very interesting kind of theology there. But you see, that's pure Arianism again. Same heresy in the 4th century. The Mormons teach that Jesus was the first thing that God made. He was the first spiritual child of God. So Arianism, even though we don't find people today on the street that say, yes, I'm a follower of Arius, there are lots of people today who are Arians. And they're Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and then some other um, heretical sects of so-called Christianity. And the reason why I'm bringing all this up is because Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and any other heretics who reject Jesus as God, like Muslims, for example, they'll do this too. They will point to verses like this. Verses where the Apostle Paul says something like, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now you see, I'm, I'm raising the stakes here. I want you to know this is a very important verse to understand. That this is, this is controversial. Not in Christianity, because we, we have the right meaning, and I'm going to give it to you in a second. But because other religions who falsely and wrongly understand this verse will try to use it against historic Christianity to say, no, Jesus isn't God. See, he's the first thing that God made. All right? So this is big stuff. We've got to understand this. All right, so now that we have that under our belt, we know... So many people have misunderstood it. What's the right way to understand it? What's the right way to understand what Paul is saying here? Well, first thing we need to recognize, right from the get-go, is again, Paul is using analogy. Right? We know for a fact he's using analogy in the first part of verse 15 when he says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's a paradoxical statement. It's clear he's using analogy there. He doesn't mean that Jesus is literally like a picture on the wall or something of God. No, it's, it's, it's an analogous image. It's metaphorical. It's not, the first part of verse 15 is not talking about Jesus in his being because Jesus and the Father are one in their being. Rather, it's talking about Jesus in sort of an analogous way about his office or about his status. And that's exactly the way that Paul is describing Jesus in the second half of verse 15. The second half, where he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, is not a statement about Jesus' essence or his being. That's the way that Arianism took that verse, that it's saying Jesus' being or his origin, where he came from, is that he is the firstborn of all creation, meaning that he is the first thing that God begat in creation. That's a statement about Jesus being. But, because the first part of verse 15 is not a statement about Jesus being, the second half can't be either, because they're joined together even by the same verb. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, not in his being, not in his origin, but rather in his status, in his metaphorical status. What does that mean? Well, when, it, when Paul talks about Jesus being the firstborn, he's not talking about where Jesus came from. He's talking about the way that Jesus ought to be honored, 
the way that he ought to be seen by lowly creatures like us. Because the firstborn in this time period in history, in this first century and in centuries before, being the firstborn son of somebody meant that you had the highest honor possible. Not simply in that family, although you did, but being a firstborn son meant you had the highest honor of anybody in society. You were in the, the top class of people if you were numbered among firstborn sons. You are worthy of the most honor, of the most respect, of the most inheritance. You are the greatest in society as a firstborn son. Right? And I think we, we know that, right? We're familiar enough with the Bible to know that firstborn sons were important. And it wasn't just that they were important within the one family. They were important in all society. They were the, worthy of the highest honor, particularly if you were the firstborn son of a king, of a monarch, who, of course, Jesus is the firstborn son of a monarch. He's the firstborn son of the chief monarch, God. All right? And so with that being said here, this metaphorical way of talking about Jesus being the firstborn is not saying that Jesus came from God in the sense that, that he was not existing and then God gave birth to him, as Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses might teach. But it's saying Jesus is firstborn in the sense that he is worthy of the highest honor and he's worthy of the highest dignity and of the highest glory and of the highest inheritance of anything in creation, of anything in all of existence. That's exactly what we learn in the Gospel of John when Jesus is praying to God, that God has this inheritance that he's going to give to Jesus, that God the Father has this great thing that he's going to give to him. And that's what's being described here. Jesus is worthy of all of the honor in all of creation. He's the firstborn not in being, but in status. And naturally, Paul then gives us the reasons why he calls Jesus the firstborn of creation. Notice, we don't have to read verse 15 in isolation. Because look at verse 16, the very first word. You see the word F-O-R, for. That word indicates reasons. Reason or reasons. It indicates the reason why Paul said the previous statement. Why does he call Jesus the firstborn of all creation? Because for, verse 16, by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So according to Paul, Jesus created all things. What does Genesis 1 say? Who made all things in Genesis 1-1? God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if Moses is saying that God created the heavens and the earth, and Paul is saying Jesus created the heavens and the earth, we have two options. One, one of them is wrong. There's a contradiction, and either Paul is wrong or Moses is wrong. But the section, second option 
is that Jesus and God are one in their being. And therefore anything ascribed to Jesus can be ascribed to God. And that's what Paul's after here. Why is Jesus worthy of all of the great inheritance and the great glory and dignity associated with being the firstborn? It's because he is the God who created heaven and earth and everything in them, visible and invisible, rulers and authorities. All things were not only created through him, but they were created for him. You see that? That's the last part of verse 16. They were created for him, meaning that Jesus is the proper telos. He's the proper end of all things. All things are pointed to him. All things find their purpose in him. And that's because he is God. He is the eternal God. Worthy of all the glory and honor and dignity and inheritance of a firstborn. Jesus is God. That is what Paul's saying here. And what's fascinating to me is that that you have these groups, these cults, these heresies in church history that have taken this verse that is clearly in the context, not only of this passage, but the whole of Scripture, meant to tell us about the deity of Jesus and have interpreted exactly the opposite from it. That's fascinating. And that's because, I mean, one of the reasons is because I would argue they're not using Scripture to interpret Scripture, first of all. They're just grabbing verses in isolation. But secondly, they also don't have the interpretive aid that real believers do. And that interpretive aid, of course, is the Holy Spirit who reveals these mysteries to the elect. Praise God for that. So this passage here is meant to tell the Colossians in the clearest of terms that Jesus is God, drawing their minds to classic texts like Genesis 1 when he says that Jesus created all things in heaven and earth. They would, the Colossians would have thought right away of Genesis 1. All right, so we're going to stop there in terms of looking at the text here because we're going to pick up in the second half of chapter 17 next week. Actually, probably just the whole of verse 17 next week, and we're only talking about verse 17 next week because it's so rich. There's so much stuff. And we'll see the deity of Jesus even clearer in verse 17 next week to back up everything we've been talking about this morning. But my question as we just sort of wrap up here, just by way of application, for lack of a better term, is how does this information help us as Christians? All right. How does this information about Jesus, how does these, these introductory uh, claims about the divinity of Jesus, about the honor of Jesus, about his status, about what he's doing, how do these things help us in our lives, in our worship, in our praise? Well, the first thing, and really... Maybe not even the first thing, maybe the the chief thing that I think. There's a million applications you could draw from this kind of thing. But the first thing, as as we are here on a Sunday morning and we're about to enter into worship in less than a half an hour or so, as we're about to enter into worship, think about it. When we enter this sanctuary and the call of worship is read and the invocation is given and we ask God to come and to be with us as we worship Him and to accept our worship, who are we talking to? We're, of course, talking to the Father. 
But whose name do we pray in? Jesus. When we enter into the sanctuary to worship our God this morning and every week in the past and every week in the future, let us remember that we are worshiping Jesus. We are worshiping the one who made the heavens and the earth, who made everything visible and who made everything invisible. And the one, as we'll learn last week, who holds all things together. This is a big God. This is a weighty matter to enter into worship of this being. This is not something to take lightly. When we enter into this service, this is a big thing. And we need to take it seriously. Because we're entering the presence of a holy Christ. Of a holy God. And you know what? We don't deserve that, do we? We don't deserve to be in the presence of a holy God. But you know what? The only way we can do that is because of the gospel. The only way we can enter into the presence of a holy God in this sanctuary is because of the work of Jesus Christ, who has covered us with his blood so that we can be regarded as holy in the presence of him. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Let's be thankful for that, and let's take our worship seriously. All right? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your Apostle Paul, and we thank you for inspiring him to write the epistle to the Colossians. Lord, we thank you every word of this epistle is not simply Paul's words, but they are also your words, your authoritative words, your inerrant words, and your words that you use to change us. Lord, I pray that as we look at these statements about you, the theological statements, Lord, that they wouldn't be just things that sit in our intellect. They wouldn't be things that just tickle our intellect. But Lord, that they would be things that change us. They would dramatically change the way we live. They would change the way we worship. And that they would draw us to you as our Savior. Well, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your gospel. And we thank you that even though you are God and you are holy and we are not, that you have provided a way for us to enter into your presence and to worship you this morning and other mornings. And Lord, we just thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless our time as we praise you and hear your word preached this morning. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.